How are they attacking the image of God? Well, they're attacking the image of God when they attack what it means to be male and female and all that is connected to marriage. Genesis 1.28 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then he makes very explicit, male and female, he created them. So the attack upon the image of God is an attack upon what it is to be made, created by him, and to be created by him, male and female. Now Jesus uses that very verse, in Mark chapter 10 it's recorded, Jesus uses that verse as an indirect application to the definition, purpose, and regulation of marriage. So Jesus knows that when that verse is written, when that verse is proclaimed, when God proclaims that, he's talking not just about the creation of human beings and not just about the creation of mankind and not just the creation even of male and female. But he's just, he, even at that very, in that very statement already, we have a definition of marriage. He goes on to explain it more in chapter 2 when we find out that um, Adam needs a helper. But right there, it's already declared. Marriage as a covenant bond between a man and a woman is an institution founded not in cultural convention or convenience, but in God's act of creation. To deny, to deny marriage as God defines it, to deny the creation of man, male and female, as God defines it, is to deny creation. It's to deny the work of creation by a personal, supreme being. And that is why the attack on the image of God is also an attack on creation, and that is why so much of today's sexual foolishness looks so, well, foolish. Why does it look so foolish? Because when you deny the God of creation... When you deny the very one who is the word of God, who is the wisdom of God, when you deny um, the logikos, the, the logic of everything in this world and how it all hangs together, when you deny that, that, that it, there's any order to it, that there's any plan to it, that there's any purpose to it, you, only, you end up in only one place, and that is chaos. That is chaos. At the same time, so that's modern culture. At the same time, each and every one of us battles the flesh. Each and every one of us battles the flesh. Our flesh is at war with the Spirit of God, says in Galatians 5.17. And there's an ongoing work of sanctification going on in each one of us. And so even as we stand principally for the truth of God's word over sex, marriage, and procreation, as we do, we must... Put those principles into practice by putting to de- death the deeds of the flesh. Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, Paul writes. And then he talks about what he's talking about. Put to death the members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul will talk about fornication, adultery, uncleanness, sexual, sexual sins in nearly every single one of his epistles. To every church that he writes, he has to deal with sexual sin. He has to deal with passions and lusts that are not, be, not contained, not being put to death. Why is that? Because Christians still battle the flesh. Christians still need to hear not just principally 
What does God mean when, he's, when he has given us this gift and when he has given us the gift of marriage? But practically, how are we to live in the midst of what God has given us and in the midst of a fallen world and in the midst of our own battles in our own flesh and to do so by the Spirit of God? So, we are told that we must put to death the deeds of the flesh and cultivate a way of life that truly honors the marriage bed. Truly honors the marriage bed in principle, the way that we live our lives, the way what we believe, what we stand for, and in practice, what we protect, what we put to death, and what we cultivate. The sexual union of a husband and a wife is a part of the declaration of the union of Christ and his bride. It is not simply that, um, that, that, that beautiful picture of a marriage that you see at a wedding. Some of you are visiting here, having been to a wedding this weekend. A beautiful picture of a wedding is not all that is involved in a picture right there for you, although it's there, a picture of Christ and his church. But it is the one flesh union. It is the sexual union as well that is the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his relationship, his intimate relationship with his bride, the church. And so, and so, this is a gospel issue. In our day and age, we have far too many churches, far too many reformed uh, um, conservative churches who will not preach against sexual sin because they say it's not a gospel issue. It is foundationally a very gospel-centered issue. It is connected to the gospel itself. And, it, and, and the tragedy is the church, in not speaking to this, not speaking to this issue that is all around us, is denying the power of the gospel to save people from their sins. The gospel instead becomes just a, here is your, a ticket to heaven, or here is the uh, declaration of some truths that I want you to internalize and enjoy some kind of sweet fellowship with God that is, doesn't really affect the rest of the world around you and certainly doesn't affect all that much about what you're doing. Because if I, were to, if I was to say that, then I would be a legalist. I would be telling you that your salvation is by works and not by grace alone. No, your salvation is by grace alone. You're, you are, you're done for. If God, if God has not granted his, his full and free grace for you, you're done for. We're all done for. But that grace that brings life, that grace that brings forgiveness, that grace that gives you all that you need to love God and to enjoy God also gives you all that you need to obey God and to obey God gladly from the heart. And so this, this is very much a gospel issue. And it is also an issue that is, is really a dividing line between delight and despair. A dividing line between a great delight in, in a gift that God has given us and horrible tragedy and despair in this created world if we do not believe, embrace, protect, and live out the creational design that God has given to us. This is what the writer of Hebrews is, uh, is saying in this one short little verse. Um, ep epistles are interesting, and Hebrews is, is not necessarily technically an epistle. It's actually it's understood possibly to be a sermon, a sermon text that was, that was given. 
But like the epistles, oftentimes the, the letters, Paul and others, they, they deal with some big, broad topics. Um, and then, I, I don't know, either the, the, the person that's uh, the scribe that's writing it down for him says, uh, you know, I got to get home for dinner. And, and so he says, well, hang on, let, just give me a few more things. And you get all these just, you know, pray without ceasing, give thanks always. Let's get all these just last things in here before it's all, all over. You, you see this regularly um, as you read through the epistles. There's a few more things I want you to say. It also could be taken this way. The, the broad concepts that are given in those epistles are to be used now to apply a, a number of final practical points that he wants to bring, that the, that the author wants to bring out. In any event, it's not, they're not just tags, tag endings. They are to be considered very carefully. And this, is, this, this verse uh, is laid out, um, really there's three phrases in here. And I want to look at those, those phrases um, first of all and talk about the principle that he is putting forth. And then talk about how we are to put that into practice, at least, at least in three uh, different ways. So first of all, honoring the marriage bed in principle. In principle. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The first phrase, marriage is honorable among all. The first phrase, marriage is honorable among all. Interesting, it's not a make marriage honorable. It's not, uh, it's not we'll try to build up to, to, to see if we can find marriage to be honorable. It's a, it's a simple declaration. Marriage is honorable among all. So that, that first phrase means that God's institution of marriage, which is a covenant bond, sovereignly administered by solemn vows, with attendant blessings and curses between one man and one woman, this is honorable. It's honorable. What, is, what does that mean? Well, that means it is, it is a glorious and powerful and majestic and respectable institution which is to be cherished by all. It's to be cherished, of course, by those who enter into that covenant. But it's also to be cherished by the society, even the people that are, are surrounding those who are making those covenant vows. The bond, by definition, is between one man and one woman with vows until death. You are not honest with the scriptures with any other definition. It is a bond between one man and one woman with vows until death. When a man and a woman marry, they become one flesh. They become one flesh, we are told. There is a transformation. They're different than they were before they took their vows. There's a, there's a transformation in their relationship to one another. Their relationship before God is, is transformed in many ways. And their, their relationship with all the people around them has now changed as well. And so their, their relationship with the rest of the world is transformed. I, I say oftentimes in a, in a wedding ceremony, I'll say, declare them to be almost another Adam and Eve, a new Adam and Eve in their own garden, to take dominion of, of, of a world, their world, in the, name of, in the name of God, to the glory of God, as they now work out their salvation with fear and trembling as husband and wife, father and mother, and, and, and used by God for just those purposes. So they have been transformed as well. And that means it is honored by those who are married, by those keeping the vows, and by those who are outside the marriage, by respecting those vows and by holding a couple responsible to keep those vows. In a marriage ceremony, oftentimes it is asked, will you, the congregation, you friends and family, do all that you can to hold these two to their vows? And you oftentimes answer, we will, or amen, or some, you give some vow like that. And it is 
not just because you love that couple. You're usually there because you know them, you love them, you're celebrating with them, you're excited for them. And yeah, of course, these are my friends. This is my brother and sister. And I will do everything I can to make sure they, they hold up their vows. Yes, right. But that's not the only reason such a, a declaration is to be made. A declaration is to be made because they are inter you know these people are entering in to an institution that is honorable among all that is majestic, that is glorious, and is to be cherished and protected. And how dare they, how dare they do anything to make that marriage dishonorable, to, to, make the, to make what God has made honorable dishonorable. Yes, we will do all that we can, not just for them because we love them, but because we love and honor God and his institution. And we know, we know what happens to cultures and civilizations that honor such institution, and we know what happens to cultures and civilizations that do not honor that institution. And we, we're making a commitment. We want to make sure our society, including you, my friends, that are getting married, are, are honoring that which God says is honorable. I mean, I want you to consider for just a minute. Just consider for a moment what this world would look like if that's what we thought. If that's the way we lived. If we took, if we took sexual purity, if we took marriage vows, if we took the, the bearing of the fruit of a sexual union, if we took all, all the, and all of that, that that entails, if we took that seriously, just imagine what a glorious world this would be. And, and, and you just think about it also, how many societal troubles exist because the institution of marriage is not honored in every way? Just, just think about that. How many different societal problems exist for one reason? We do not take the marriage institution seriously with honor. We manipulate and use it and all that's entailed in it to our own ends, to our own selfish ends, not just in disobedience to God, but to the destruction of the world all around us. That's the first phrase. Marriage is honorable among all. And then he continues with the second phrase, and the bed undefiled. And in, in this second phrase, um, we're talking about sex and discipline. When he says the marriage, when he says bed, he's referring to, of course, the marriage bed. And in proverbial fashion, we really have two phrases talking about the same thing. There's, there's a parallelism that is going on here. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. This is talking about the marriage bed, the, the, the intimate union that is given to um, a man and a woman who have made vows of faithfulness to one another in marriage. So to agree that marriage is honorable is to say that the marriage bed is undefiled. Okay? So to say that marriage is honorable is to say that the marriage bed is undefiled. The covenant provides this fence, and that's the, that's the discipline. The, 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 the covenant provides this fence by which intimacy can be properly given, received, enjoyed, and made fruitful in countless ways. The fence is, is, is the discipline. The fence is, is, is disciplining the passions, passions that God has, has given to us, to discipline those passions and put the correct boundaries around them by which this powerful gift can be given, received, enjoyed, and made fruitful. And so the marriage bed is a place about union 
And it is a place about disciplined lovemaking. And then the third phrase, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Well, the third phrase, of course, is the other side of the coin, addressing the way that the marriage bed becomes defiled. How does a marriage bed become defiled? How does the, the marriage bed can be, is, is defiled, of course, when a, a couple um, disregards their vows, disobeys their vows in, in some way, and commits adultery in some form. But it's also defiled when there is, um, uh, when, when fornication takes place, when there is some kind of sexual immorality taking place outside of, of marriage before anybody is married. Because when you're doing, when, when that is happening, you are defiling the marriage bed. You're defiling what it stands for. You're defiling the principle of, of, what, of what God has instituted it for. You can think about it this way. Fornication includes any sexual uncleanness, especially any sexual activity outside of a marriage covenant. And adultery is sexual activity contrary to an established marriage covenant. God loves the covenant he established and promises to bring his full judgment down upon those who would tamper with it. God will not only judge individuals who defile the marriage bed, but he will. But the judgment is not just simply a judgment upon individuals. He will judge nations that do so in principle. He will judge nations that defile the marriage bed in principle. For us, this includes redefining marriage, redefining the fruit of the sexual union. Is that a child or a piece of tissue? That includes permitting unlawful divorce, divorce outside of legitimate um, reasons that God instituted, that Jesus makes very clear. Refusing to acknowledge male and female as creational designs from conception and promoting and protecting as rights all kinds of sexual perversion. Not only protecting um, sexual perversions, but demanding that they be promoted, approved of by all. This is exactly what is described in the book of Romans in chapter 1. And so, and in, that, um, and in that chapter, what becomes clear to us is that principally, not only will God judge, God is judging. These things that have befallen us are the judgment of God on our society. And so we as a nation are under that judgment. And so even this month, so-called Pride Month, is a declaration of God's judgment upon this nation. That is what we are sitting under. As a nation, we must, we must call the nation to repentance. To stand positively with this principle and to stand against any twisting of this institution is not in any way to show hatred towards someone who differs. It is not in any way. Don't let them tell you so. When you speak the truth, and especially when you speak the truth in love, you are offering freedom. You are offering um, freedom from bondage. And you're offering the way of salvation and the way of sanctification, the way to be clean. Um, do not think for a moment that your, your friends who might be in all kinds of uh, practices that you know God will judge, do not think for a moment that they are not wrestling with shame and guilt, even as they celebrate, even as they try to make laws. 
To speak to them the truth in love is to show them the way to the Father through the Son by means of the Spirit. So it is and it ought to be a stand based on loyalty to God and love for the world. We do not preach the kind of sexual fidelity that we preach. We don't teach it because we think sex is yucky. Not at all. We want to protect that which God has given to us. To stand against sexual immorality is not to be prudish or against sex. It is to be against sexual fraud. You don't refuse counterfeit bills because you hate money. You refuse counterfeit bills because they aren't money. And so when it comes to marriage, family, and the resulting society, it truly is simply this, Christ or chaos. Christ or chaos. Well, that's a verse in principle. That's a verse in principle. And I, I dare say, I probably had heads nod, or even quietly in, um, in your, uh, in, inside, your, your green. Maybe that, was, maybe that helped define some things, but no new news. But what's going on in our practice? What's going on in our practice of these principles? Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. If the principle is true and good, if we trust that God blesses obedience to that institution and to those principles and brings curses to disobedience, then our practice needs to show it. Do you believe that to be really true? James 1.22 says, but, do, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves in this many ways. We nod our heads, yes, and then we still give ourselves to all kinds of sexual immorality. And what we need to hear from the Lord is that repentance that you're praying for for this nation begins with you, begins with your heart, your mind, your body. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And judgment, may God have mercy upon us, begins with you, with me, each one of us. So let's talk about, practically speaking, what does this mean in three different ways. And, and we'll go to three different passages for this. Let's go, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I won't have time to go in depth in these passages, but particularly to pull out that which I, that which I think addresses particularly the practical aspect of what it means that marriage is honorable among all in the bed undefiled and that God will judge fornicators and adulterers. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For the sake of the context, I'm going to read verses 12 through 20 and then I'm going to just point out a few things. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality. By the way, that word is fornication, pornea, if you're trying to just keep track here. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up, that is, our bodies up, by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall he then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Just a little context there. There are these 
temples in Corinth, uh, managed by priestesses, basically are paid harlots by which you go and offer sacrifices and then you enjoy the pleasure of a harlot. Um, and that's all con- con- part of this cultural milieu in, in Corinth. It's just, Paul has to write to Christians and say, guys, we can't do this anymore. Like, that, that's not okay anymore. He goes on. Uh, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee porneos. Flee fornication. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price... Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So he says here, flee fornication, flee sexual immorality. And there's our first practical application. Flee it. Run from it. You're a Christian. And and as a Christian, it does not mean that you will not face sexual temptation. You will, as did the Corinthians. And you will in great measure, as did the Corinthians. You will in great measure, not only because of your flesh, but because of the world in which you live, just as the Corinthians. To Corinthianize was a common jargon, meaning to give oneself to all manner of lusts and sexual defilement and perversions. When facing such temptations, Christians are to cut and run, flee, get out of there. Get out of there now. That's what Paul's saying. We are to flee immediately. Jesus says, um, with regard to our lust, he says to cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. So an application of this might mean for you that you need to get rid of your computer, your smartphone, your Netflix subscription, or the company you keep. And all the while, knowing that the core problem is your heart. Jesus says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. But all those other things are just gas to pour on the fire of your lusts. Get rid of them and deal with your heart before God. Get rid of them and deal with your heart before God. Don't not get rid of them and think that you are dealing with your heart. It is not just a heart issue. It is a body issue. It is a body issue, and Paul's making very clear, I care about your body. I care about what you're doing with your body. I care about what you might be doing with a harlot with your body, because your body's going to be resurrected one day. Your body, don't you, don't you know you're members of the body of Christ? He cares about your body. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and you've been bought with a price, not only your soul, but your body. Look again at verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. How do you glorify God with your body in this context? Flee. (laughs) Flee fornication. That glorifies God with your body. Get out of there. Don't think of the body as as like having this cavity where you can find the Holy Spirit sitting. (laughs) This, your, your, your body is indwelt, united with the Holy Spirit. You can't ask him to leave or go over in the corner somewhere or cover his eyes. He's there. God is with you always. He is indwelling United to your body. Now, 
The activity of the marriage bed, the activity of the marriage bed requires two bodies. Okay? Fornication it comes from the word pornea, which is where we get our word pornography. And pornography is sin. Partaking of pornography is a sin. And everybody's heads would nod as well. But do you also know that it is sexual heresy? It's Gnosticism. It's Gnosticism. It's Gnostic to unite yourself with an image. This is not what, that's not what the marriage bed is. This, that, is that is as counterfeit as a red $20 bill. As a Monopoly playing piece. It is, it's not the real thing. It's, it's nothing like the real thing. It is, it is plain and simple Gnosticism. I'm seeking pleasure in, I don't know where, with pixels. So, flee fornication. Flee the heresy. Because that heresy is going to work itself out in a number of other practical applications of your life that you're not even, you don't even know. Connected to this, we must repent of the idea that sexual activity with someone outside the covenant is natural. 1 Corinthians 6, 13. He's saying, food's for the stomach and stomach for the food. You can choose food. That's just great. But and it's all going it, to, it, God's going to destroy both the food and the, and the body. And, but he says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord... For the body, it's not natural to connect your body, he goes on now to describe, in some kind of fashion outside of marriage. And here's where Christians need to understand this as well. Dating or courting or, as many Christians need to be told today, living with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage is not marriage. It's not a commitment. There, there's no covenant vow. There's, there's no public vows before God. There's no boundaries. There's no fence being set. There's no discipline. And <coughs> guess what happens? <coughs> not only is it a sin before God, it hurts people. It hurts people very, very badly. It makes the job of a pastor very, very busy. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And when you're in a relationship that is not bound with covenant bonds, you're grieving the spirit. When there are no covenant fences, that intimacy is not safe, it is not natural, and it is never blessed by God. Fornication sounds like a harsh, such a harsh word that we're tempted to think that it isn't what's going on in one's own loving relationship. But any kind of unmarried fooling around and every reasonable person knows what fooling around is, is what we are to flee from. Now, here's what happens. Hormones and sexual temptation make us all unreasonable. That makes us all, what happens is we become unreasonable. And that is why we need the strict and hard accountability of community. That is why daughters need fathers who care about them who speak to them, who raise them up and cause them to, and cause them to know, uh, you are under my protection. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the day of giving you to, to a man who will love and care for you that you can respect even more than me. That means that, that young men have um, fathers and mothers who, who um, hit them hard when need be 
to protect them from the sexual temptations that they are going to have. Fathers, you know, don't pretend in your head that your young man isn't having some kinds of, of sexual temptations. And by the way, he needs to talk to you about it. And you need to talk to him. At the right, at, at, in, in different stages and in different ways, um, you don't just back up the, the truck of, of everything and dump it all in, in front of the kid. That's not helpful. You, you use wisdom, but they need you. They need the hard accountability of a society, of a church, of a people who love and know what it is to love one another and do so with propriety, with prudence, um, and with love. So, first point, flee fornication. Second one is to pursue sanctification. Not only are we to run away, but we are to run towards something as well. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, I'll read the passage and then make a few points from it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, before I go on, just a little bit of context about Thessalonians and, the, and this letter. Paul is writing to Thessalonians in a very different way than he writes to many of the other churches. Compare, compare how he greets the Thessalonians to how he greets, to, for instance, the churches in Galatia. The churches in Galatia are a mess. The churches in Corinth are a mess. When he writes to Thessalonians, he says, I just rejoice in how you guys are doing. You're doing fabulous. And a fabulous church still needs to be told these things. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. There it is again, pornea. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit showing up again. <laughs> again, there's, there's too much here, to, but I want, I want you to notice this. This is the will of God, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And that journey of sanctification is a hard journey. That's why we're told to do hard things like mortify the flesh, put it to death, the deeds. That, that work of sanctification is a work that God is doing, but you are participating. You are, you are given the grace of God. You're given the ability to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He's at work in you, and then you work it out. You work it out, and it's hard. This means that we must, he says in verse 4, we must conquer and possess our own vessel, which could refer to our own body or to the body of your spouse. There's application really both ways. And, and you are to conquer and possess your own vessel in holiness and honor, which is the opposite of the passion of, the, of lust like the pagans. And so we are not to look like the pagans in the way that we pursue these passions. In, in the way that we use these passions, in the way that we protect these passions. If we do not do this, we are warned here that God will avenge the one that we defraud. Verse 6. He warns, he will avenge. He will bring his vengeance upon, uh, upon you if you defraud another. You don't want to be on the receiving end of such vengeance. 
To follow the pagan view of sex and sexuality, in verse 8, is to reject God. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. You know how many times I've heard people say, I have a different view about marriage, I have a different view about sexuality, I have a different view, and I'm not rejecting God. 1, Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 8 says exactly the opposite. You may not say that you're a Christian, but you get to redefine that which is the, that was part of the created order. You don't get both. You do not get both. So, to follow the pagan view of sex and sexuality is to reject God. Sanctification begins early. It begins very early. And kids, I want to address the kids for just a moment, who many of you are wondering, rightly so, what exactly I'm talking about and all the details. Well, here's what I'm talking about that you can know about, that you can know about. You have, you already have passions and desires. You, you really want things. And one of the things that you have to learn to do, and parents need to help you to do this, is learn from, the, from very early on that you cannot just give in to how you're feeling. You cannot just give in to what you want, even if it's a good thing. You cannot, just, you cannot just give yourself over to whatever your feeling, whatever your desire is. You must learn to, to determine, is this right for me right now? And that includes, that includes good things, like the huge bag of candy you got at Halloween or something like that, and then all of a sudden you're like, Should I just, can I just eat it all today? You know? Well, there's good reasons not to. Okay? And, and part of the good reasons is simply learning to say no to those desires so they're not, they're, they're not leading you. You're leading them. But also other desires. Well, can I just get mad at my brother or sister because I feel mad? Can I just spout off with anger because I feel it? And especially because I'm right. No. No, you're to mortify those passions as well. You're not allowed to just spout off at a brother or sister because you're mad at them. But I feel it. Don't I need to vent it? No, you need to go back and listen to my sermon from last Sunday. So I have a, that's why I have a copy for every family. How to be free from bitterness. Help yourself on the way out. No, you need, you need to learn. Children need to learn not to be bitter. And so this, this, you, if you do, the more that you give yourself to that, parents, the more that you discipline your children in this, the better prepared they are to discipline their bodies when the hormones hit. And so, flee, run away from fornication, and flee towards, do the hard work in the journey of your sanctification. Your sanctification will not make life a bummer. Your sanctification will make life more fruitful, more pleasurable, and you'll have far less shame and guilt. They'll just have far less that you have to deal with before God in that way. And finally... Finally, if that's not enough, one more. 1 Corinthians again, chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Because one more positive comment really needs to be made about the marriage bed. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 4. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own woman, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Then he goes on to, to say, do not deprive one another with certain exceptions. Now, verse 2 um, Actually, verse 1, I'm sorry, um, when he, when, in the second half of verse 1. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote me, it is good for a woman, is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul is not saying, that, that's not a command, that, that's not a statement that Paul is making. It's a statement that he's going to, that they have asked him about. He says, now, but, now the, concerning the things that you've written, apparently he's received a letter, a number of different questions. First topic, um, this thing that you say, it is good for a man not to teach a woman. And then he says, and my translation says, nevertheless, it could just be, but actually, he's going he's gonna to stand against that. He's going to say, but actually, <coughs> let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. There, there are evidences that in that century, that there, there was this idea that, well, there's all this sexual immorality going on, and so I will become far more pure and holy if I, if I don't have intimate, and I'm not intimate with my husband, with my wife. That will make me more holy. And all kinds of terrible teachings in the church have, got, have blown out from that. What, what, what Paul is saying, no, 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 actually, it's good for a man to touch his wife. It's, it's good for a man to touch. And when he says this, it's a euphemism, and Paul is addressing what they have asked him about. He makes the case quite the opposite, that in marriage, it is, it is a good gift from God to render to one another what you vowed to give at the altar. All that I have and all that I am I give to you. All that I am and all that I have, I give to you. In, in, in good times and in bad times, in sickness and in health, I, it's all yours. It's all yours. To do so is, is, produces or gives forth what marriage is for, which is for procreation, bringing forth children into the world, which is a part of the dominion mandate to fill the earth and take dominion over it. Which is why man needed a helper to help him do that. For a number of different reasons, but one of the reasons is to have children. And to build with that, in that, in that uh, child-rearing families and societies as God gives us opportunity to do so. And as well to celebrate and cultivate close relational and physical pleasure for the mutual enjoyment of one another, mutual comfort of one another, and the, perp and the society that that produces as well. These are, these are the good gifts from God. And then he also, really what he's addressing here is that since the fall, it is a primary protection as well against sexual temptations. In a healthy marriage, and, and let me say, a healthy marriage has more than just this going on. A healthy marriage has uh, tenderness and kindness and, um, and forgiveness. Bitterness is not allowed in the home. Anger is not allowed in the home. That's a healthy marriage. And in a healthy marriage, the fact that temptations exist is therefore now not resented, but instead addressed in very earthy and practical ways. Um, in Proverbs chapter 5, he writes, drink, from, uh, your, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. He's, again, this is euphemisms. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets... Let them be only your own and not, be, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. 
For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? That's just good, earthy protection and, 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 and invitation. Now, if that doesn't sound politically incorrect enough, let me push it further. Verse 4, verse 4 of this passage says that each partner has authority over the other partner's body and does not have authority over their own body. And this means far more than simply a right to conjugal privilege. It, it means far more than that. In fact, if that's all it meant, um, it would, it would become, we'd be talking about a duty which is just, um, can just become a bummer. Rather, it means that the husband and the wife have mutual responsibilities for their spouse, for their spouse's desires and fears and thoughts and distractions and temptations in particular frames and particularly in the marriage bed. He has responsibility for her fears and desires and passions and frame. She has responsibility for his passions, fears, thoughts, distractions. You ever, to, to have authority over someone else means you have responsibility for them. You must take responsibility for them. It does not mean that you have a right to make your spouse have the same desires or preferences or distractions. You're not trying to make a clone. That's not what you do. The emphasis is not you owe me, but rather I owe you. It is the language of my life for yours. And it applies to far more than just the marriage bed, but it does include, if not actually begin, in the marriage bed. And as far as beds go, it can only take place in a marriage bed. It's the only place where such authority is granted, where such responsibility is given and blessed by God. And it can only take place there full of solemn vows and promises. Mutual responsibility. This means that you are responsible before God for your spouse. You're responsible before God for your spouse's passions, desires, pleasure. You're responsible before God to give and to, and to create an active, positive, behind-the-closed-doors marriage bed. And all of this, all of this is because marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. All of this is because God loves marriage and all that marriage entails. And all of this means it's hard work for each and every couple over all different seasons of life to give themselves to the good work of marriage. I told you in the last two weeks I wanted to give two sermons that are just practical stuff. And, and this is the second one. And each and every one of us, each and every one of you have your own personal applications to make with this topic. I know because Paul writes about it in every single epistle to every single church because it is something that goes on in every single home. It is not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to, to think is yucky. It is not something to deny. It is something to pursue in a godly manner with your spouse. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And then we are told, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The gospel is the way. The gospel is a way, is the way to union with the Holy Spirit, 
Union by the Holy Spirit through Jesus with the Father. And union with one another as a married couple. The gospel is the way. Imitate Christ and the church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.